0: Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not now realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was to betray him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.
1: Join me in prayer before we get started. Lord, we come before you with a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings and a lot of concerns, a lot of questions. And we know that we are supposed to engage in this conversation around race, but we often feel wholly inadequate. And so Lord, we invite you to be with us, to sit next to us as we process, the words that you have given me for our community words that you've given me for myself and so lord we pray psalm 5110 that as we do this work of acknowledging the systems of racial oppression that you create in us pure hearts and that you renew steadfast spirits within us in your name jesus amen so if I'm honest with you, I never wanna talk about race. I never wanted to get up in any kind of capacity and talk about race within the church, within our country. Racism and white supremacy, those words were, have always been incredibly scary for me. I came to faith in a predominantly white church and a predominantly white community. And I loved the people who brought me to faith so deeply. Their commitment to the Lord was astounding. Their love for me and their desire to see me grow into the woman, that, the young woman that God wanted me to be, was so real. They showed up for me in, in beautiful and tangible ways. And yet it was very clear to me every Sunday that I was different from them. I was, I was one of, if not the only black young adult uh, child in that church. I started going to that church when I was about nine years old. And so I grew up in that church recognizing that I, kind of, I spend my whole week within a context, a black context, a black family where we talk about things that have to do with our survival as black people in this world. And yet when I stepped into church, I couldn't talk about it. Because the, the, the current narrative, the driving narrative in our church was that anytime we talked about race, we were being divisive because God made us all one and we should just really look at our identity in Christ first. And we should look at all the ways that we are more alike than we are different. That talking about race actually caused more division because we really don't have anything new or, or to say about that. Or that's a progressive idea. That's the thing other people talk about. But here in the church, we talk about holiness. Here in the church, we practice fasting. Here in the church, we read the Bible. We don't talk about race. And so being a a, a black young believer in a predominantly white space, I always lived in this tension knowing that I am black and I need to be able to talk about my blackness And I need to know that God, like I've said on this stage before, didn't make a mistake in making me black, and yet I couldn't do it in church. And so all this this tension just kind of like a low hum in my background from like nine into my teen years until one instance really brought to the head my distrust for white Christians. James Byrd died. James Byrd's murder in uh, 1998, I was 17 years old, and James Byrd was a 48-year-old man in Jasper, Texas, a town just two and a half half hours away from my hometown in Texas. One Sunday morning in June, James Byrd was walking home from his parents' house, and three white men pulled up next to him, one of them a longtime friend of his, and invited him to catch a ride home with them. And he did not make it home. These men were white supremacists. And what happened to James Byrd was so gruesome and so horrible that in 2008, President Obama passed a hate crime prevention act with his name and another man's name attached to it. I found out about James Byrd's death on the news, and I honestly thought, these kind of things don't happen anymore. These things don't happen in Texas. I mean, we're the South, but we're not really the South. We're our own thing. We're Texas. We don't do this. And I spent the whole week grieving and, and uh, James Byrd, and, and, and looking at him and seeing my father and seeing my uncle, seeing black men, looking at him and being reminded of the black men that I loved. And I spent that whole week fear and fear, afraid of walking home by myself. And I spent that whole week anxious about going to church. I was anxious about going to church because I wanted to, to know that my church would talk about it. I wanted to know what we would say in the face of such a horrendous death, what they would do. And they didn't do a single thing. Not the pastor or my Sunday school teacher or my trusted mentors or older friends in the church. We sang, you are awesome in this place, mighty God. And our pastor got up and preached about living holiness. And all I kept thinking was, God, you are not awesome in this place. Because I am grieving and no one is paying attention. And God, if this is the kind of holiness that you want from us, I don't want it. Because I was tired of being the only black person in a Christian context where white people didn't talk about race. And at that tender age of 17, the enemy introduced this lie that I had to process and work through for so many years. It is not safe for you as a black Christian in predominantly white spaces to grieve any type of racially charged deaths. And that if there's going to be any kind of racial healing in this country, it's not gonna include white people because they don't care. They'd rather see black men beaten and dragged to death behind a pickup truck than work together and care about black people's pain. This lie stayed with me for 14 years and then it's reared its ugly head later when another death shook me to the core. But this time I decided to have a different response. In February of 2012, we were living in Boston and I had three little ones. My oldest was nine years old. And we came in from playing and or we came in from from running errands and and my oldest was so excited because he he had just got something with his allowance and so he ran to the floor and he was playing, he didn't even take his shoes off, he didn't even take his hoodie off, he barely took his coat off. And in Boston, you know you need to have a coat when you're out and about in February, and he just was on the floor and he was playing and I sat down and I opened up my phone and I learned about Trayvon Martin's death. Trayvon Martin was a seventeen-year-old boy who decided to go to the convenience store one evening. It was a rainy evening, and so he pulled his hood up over his head. And as he was walking back from the convenience store with an iced tea in one hand and the Skittles that he got from the convenience store, a white neighborhood watchman named George Zimmerman felt like he was a suspicious person. And he made a 911 call that you can go and listen to, and you can hear that George was determined to have some sort of interaction with Trayvon Martin. And that interaction ended with Trayvon's death. And as I sat there looking at this picture of Trayvon Martin in his hoodie that was was shared every time the story came up, I looked down at my nine-year-old wearing a hoodie, pulled over his head, and I felt deep fear again. That it is hard to be brown in this country. And that there is nothing I can do to protect my child or myself. And so that evening, we had to run another errand. And this time, I decided to take my kids on the train. And we decided to go to Harvard Square because I needed to pick up some things from the gap in Harvard Square. And we were walking around Harvard, and my son was still walking around with his coat on and his hoodie pulled up. And the whole time, I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, pull your hoodie down. Pull your hoodie down. And so we're in the gap, and I buy the things I need, and then we go across the street to the bookstore because that was always their little treat if they came into Harvard Square with me. And my daughter pulled me aside and said, I think Tyson took something from the store. And so I pulled my son to me, and I said, what did you do? And he said, nothing. And so i bent been down, and I gave my brown son his very first ever pat down. I patted his pants and his coat and I found the sunglasses he took and I grabbed them and I held them in his face and I said, "Don't you know this is what they kill us over? Don't you know this is what they expect of us? You're going to go back to that store and you're going to apologize." And that night as I put them to bed, my daughter was in a different room than her brothers and I was tucking her in and she reached up and she said, "Mama, if they kill black boys, what do they do to black girls?" And that night I laid in bed and I realized that I had to do something with that lie that I was holding. Because my children are biracial, they have a white father and I cannot let them live in a world where they are as afraid of white people as I was. And so I laid on that bed and I asked God to give me a new way to create in me a clean heart and to show me what I should do with all of the pain that I was experiencing because of racism. Last week, Greg taught us um, to pay attention to the systems, the systems in this world, and to pay attention to the, to the spiritual forces that are influencing those systems. We looked closely at Ephesians 6.12, and we talked a lot about how we can be aware of those systems because those systems really do influence the way that we interact with each other, the thriving, the survival, the care of black and brown people in our country. We talked about things like housing and education. there's other areas where these systems come to play, like healthcare and workplace policies and policing and et cetera. And we ask ourselves, how do we as kingdom people doing this work of anti-racism, practice spiritual warfare, remembering that there are, there are influences, principalities and powers that influence these systems? Well, today, we're not going to focus on those systems. We are going to look at how we interact with each other. You see, I had a choice laying in that bed, to stay angry and defensive to white people. Or I could choose to not be terrified of white people and to address the root system, the thing that was going on, white supremacy as a problem. So the next morning, after I prayed and cried that night, having to deal with all of my anger and frustration that I had towards white people, I read Ephesians 6.12 again. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers and the principalities. But I want to hang out on that first part because Greg did such a great job talking about the rulers and the authorities and the powers and the principalities. I want to hang out on that first part because that first part stood out to me that next morning, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So what I did was I decided that I was going to have to actively love white people and involve white people into this conversation. And so I was a part of a writer's group at that time. And so I sent out this really timid, timid, timid email. I was very tentative. I didn't know if anybody would respond because at this point, I really felt like white people didn't care. And I was so afraid I was going to get kicked out of this group for bringing it up because, again, I was one of the only black people in this group. And I emailed them the picture of Trayvon Martin. And I showed them the picture of my son that my husband took in his hoodie. And I said, I can't get over my pain. And so George Zimmerman decided that he was going to stand his ground. There was a law um, in Florida that he used to validate why he did what he did. And so I said, I wanna stand our ground in prayer. Does any one of you white writers want to stand your ground with me and send in a prayer? And my inbox filled filled with white women who are saying I don't ever really talk about race but I love you and I'm willing to write a prayer or I have been thinking about Trayvon Martin since I first heard about it and this is one way that I can take what I have and 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 use my voice against racism yes we will stand our ground and pray with you and their faithfulness reminded me of all of the white people all the white Christians who like I said loved me well And it reminded me of all of their humanity. And it reminded me of something that I learned from Dr. Martin Luther King, that oppressive systems affect the oppressed people and the oppressors. That this brokenness that has been ushered in by white supremacy, by violence to black and brown bodies, affects black, brown, and white people. All of us have struggled to hold on to our humanity because of this principality and power. And my job at that moment, was to love my white brothers and sisters well by making space for them and inviting them into my pain and trusting, trusting the good in them. Their faithfulness combated the influence of the enemy that all white people don't care or all white people are afraid of black people or that I'll never be able to be my full black self in predominantly white spaces. And I have evidence from the Holy Spirit in every single one of those prayers that they sent in that the spirit was moving on their hearts. The spirit is moving in white people who want to see it into systemic racism. And as much as I can, I will hold on to that humanity and honor it. And that brought me to this realization that my work as a kingdom person to dismantle racism is going to have to be more than just learning. It's going to have to be more than just going out and doing things. Dismantling white supremacy is a heart issue for every single person engaged. It's more than head and hands. We can learn all the details. We can sign all the petitions. But what's really going to make the changes we want to stick, not just in our country, but in our churches, is is if our hearts are changed and our hearts are connected. We must, on this journey, feel truly loved and fully connected and on mission together. We must, as Elder Lilla Watson, an Australian uh, Aboriginal leader says, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. You see those powers, those principalities and powers? They seek to keep us divided on this work. And this, and this happens in a myriad of ways, mostly in our emotional responses to each other as we're doing this work. Defensiveness and anger, overwhelm, fear, frustration, shame, guilt, even annoyance. And as we look back at our passage from last week, I want us to pay special attention again to Ephesians six twelve, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So when all of those emotions come up, We don't fight with the other person because those emotions make us feel uncomfortable. We fight for that other person because those emotions make them feel uncomfortable. We never fight against fellow image bearers. But if we're not careful in this work, we can create new us and them dichotomies. For for instance, the white person who is learning versus the skeptical racist. The principalities desire nothing more than to inflict a new version of conflict, and in my work, I have seen this over and over and over again. If you know anything about me and my work, and if you have took my Reconciling Love class, you know that there is one thing that I emphasize, our posture in this work. This approach to anti-racism combines the challenge to dismantle white supremacy with our calling to be peacemakers who reflect Jesus' sacrificial love. My shorthand for this approach is, I'm an anti-racist peacemaker, or I am doing anti-racist peacemaking. Because I do care about what you know, and as a teacher, I will try my best to make sure you are well-educated about the right right things to say and and the right ways to think about this and tie them to scripture as much as I can. But that means nothing if we don't have the posture that says we are going to do this work together. I will always, always, always champion love and unity over your intellect and the books that you read. This is how we are going to engage in this work to kingdom people. This is what we are being asked to remember, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. As followers of Jesus, we should have a different posture. We should take as we engage in this Kairos moment. And so you've heard us say that this is a Kairos moment. And basically what that means is that this is a moment that requires a response. That the response that we have, the ways that we engage in this moment will have implications, will affect possibly generations to come. Like, think about Esther. She was in her own Kairos moment. She was called to speak up on behalf of the Israelites. And what she did, what she brought to that moment, affected generations to come. We have smaller kind of Kairos moments like accepting or rejecting a marriage proposal or moving to another state. A Kairos moment is a moment that asks you to pay attention and respond. So what if, in this Kairos moment, as we revolt against the powers, and in this case, systems of racial oppression, we choose to revolt against them through education and prayer and activism and conversation, and we choose to respond to those forces that conspire to keep us interpersonally divided and distrustful of each other by choosing to respond in love. What if, as we're dismantling the systems, we're also committed to protecting and building up the covenant to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? A few years ago, one of the pastors here at Woodland had a picture that so moved me when I first heard it. Because it was very similar to a picture that I had when I gathered those prayers from those white writers and was posting them on my blog. It's a picture of a warrior going into battle, taking off their armor, kneeling, and then lifting cupped hands. You see, when I asked these women if they would pray with me, if they felt comfortable if I posted some of those prayers to my blog, I had a picture of them kneeling with their white hands, raised to the Lord to equip them for the battle of black human dignity and multicultural relational wholeness. This is our posture kingdom, people instead of facing off and squaring us squaring up preparing to attack each from preparing for an attack from each other we resist the urge to fight each other and kneel and raise our hands awaiting marching orders and the proper spiritual armor so jesus modeled this posture for us in our passage that we just saw Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, showed how this kingdom posture exposes the powers and solidified his covenant to his disciples. Jesus, taking this posture, washed the disciples' feet. So in those days, it was customary for a slave to wash the feet of visitors. And to not provide this kindness was actually considered inhospitable. And so for me, when I know this, I wonder if Jesus knew that this teaching was going to be so important for his disciples. He, said, he sent word ahead and said, don't provide that. I'm going to be the one that provides that. So Jesus himself gets up from the table and removes his outer garment and pours himself a basin of water and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And you have to know that at this time, it wasn't a very clean or very easy job to wash someone's feet. They had been walking on dirt roads. They had possibly been walking through or adjacent animal dung. They had probably been walking for long stretches so their feet were sweaty and achy. This was a beautiful service that Jesus was offering them, a deeply humanizing service that Jesus was showing them. Jesus, God in flesh, kneeled before humans and washed their feet. He didn't have to do it. In fact, it was shocking and offensive because every single person in that room expected Jesus to, not to, expected to serve Jesus, not to be served by him. He chose to surrender his privilege as a man, a leader. The Messiah, God Himself, and lovingly care for His disciples, worn achy, dirty feet. This really shouldn't surprise us, though. All through his ministry, and especially the week leading up to the cross, Jesus was teaching the disciples about his countercultural way, the kingdom way. Jesus knew that they what they expected from him. He knew that they wanted him to overturn the violent Roman Empire with violence to take his place as king with political power and might, to elevate the Jewish people to their rightful place, and to end all of their suffering, to end all of their oppression. Jesus, however, wasn't interested in playing by the rules of the kingdom of this world that thrives on violence and division. No, Jesus' kingdom is different. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of the vision that is always bolder and always more beautiful and always more inclusive and always more lasting than anything secured by violence or division. Jesus knew that the way of the kingdom was power under, not power over. The kingdoms of this world put their trust in coercive power to exercise over others. And here at Woodland, we call this the power of the sword. But the kingdom of God we listen, But in the kingdom of God, we listen to Jesus' admonition of Peter in the garden, and we put away our swords. We reject the instinct to use coercive power over people, and instead we choose to rely on the exclusive power of love that, that brings transformation and change and unity. We exercise this power because we know that this is a power that creates lasting change. You see, violence will always beget violence. Violence will will always create fear, and violence loves to keep us divided. But love, service, coming under, holding tight to the humanity of each and every single person, that remakes the world. That brings in the shalom of God, his dream of flourishing for every single person. That brings a system to the world where all of us can thrive and feel safe, because I know that I care about my white brothers and sisters, and I know that my white brothers and sisters care about me. And while the cross may look weak next to the sword power, it is, in fact, as Greg says, the greatest power in the universe. This is the power that we see on the cross, but I want to be really clear that the, the cross was the climax, was the ultimate glorification of Jesus in this self-sacrificial power underway through his whole ministry. And in this moment that we just saw, Jesus showed that the important thing for, for kingdom people, the posture that we should always take is that posture of coming under. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet just a mere hours before his arrest, hours before his questioning with, by Pilate, hours before his brutal beating, Jesus was reaffirming his whole ministry in kingdom way. And it's just not what the disciples expected, but it's exactly what they needed. He showed that his kingdom way is a way of humanizing people, of coming under them and loving them, and being willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus knew that the powers of hate, that desire to maintain division through violence, through coercive violence, he knew that that's what they wanted, but he showed them the power of love. So much so that when Peter interacted with it, he, he, was, he was shocked and he was transformed and, he, and his eyes were opened to the beauty and the power of being loved and cared for. And this is how we should respond to the growing conversation on race kingdom people. When the powers press in, when they influence us to divide or to get our lives from our knowledge or to resist change because we prefer comfort or believe anything other than the truth that we are all beloved children of God, we as kingdom people resist struggling against flesh and blood by taking a posture of love towards each other. This posture leads us to serve over dominate, listen over proving our rightness, learn instead of digging our heels in, lament instead of being indifferent, and live together instead of apart. Taking this posture as anti-racist peacemakers transforms the nature of this conflict that has always been merely human, has always been us and them, black enslaved people and colonizers, white and black, progressive, conservative, woke or bigot, and we take it out of this battle into a cosmic battle that we as kingdom people of love are invading against the kingdom of hate of this world. So practically, what does that look like? That feels like a lot. That feels incredibly overwhelming, right? I mean, just invasion alone, that sounds like something that's gonna take a lot of time and need a lot of coffee. Well, when I think about being a part of the kingdom's invasion of love, And I look at this posture that Jesus set before us. When I ask myself, what does it look like to wash the feet of my white brothers and sisters? I choose to say that I am going to be an anti-racist peacemaker by loving yet challenging. And I do it in four ways. There's four responses that I see in this moment in Jesus's ministry so that I can never forget that my true battle is with the enemy and not the people. So the first one is that we see Jesus respond with confidence. Jesus knew that he belonged to the Father and the Father put all things under his power and that he he came from the Father and he was going to return to the Father. Jesus knew that the Father loved him, that he was held in the Father's hands. And because of this, he could serve. He could love. He could be viewed as unwise or offensive. He could think about what was best for others and do what was best for them to seek their worth so that they can find their identity and they can find their confidence. He didn't put any of his identity in their responses. His calling was to settle into the Father's love for him and the Father's care for him. And so because he was held by the Father, he could hold others. In this work as a black woman, as I choose to do this, have this posture of an anti-racist peacemaker, I have received a lot of pushback. That people think I'm being too nice to white people, that I lack a certain level of anger, or that I haven't experienced racism enough. But I can tell you that choosing this posture has been one of the hardest things I've done as a Christian. It has asked me to come to terms with the racism that I've experienced in my own life, and look at the people who enacted that racism on me as people deeply loved by God. Like the security guard who stopped me at the grocery store when I was, when my youngest, my my baby wouldn't nurse, and I had to put her on formula and the doctor said she could only have the special kind of formula. And so I was looking all through, at all the different stores, calling around to find this formula and I found enough of the quality we needed at this affluent grocery store that I never visit. And so I went and I looked around and again only or one of one or two black people in a predominantly white space. And so I'm shopping for the formula. And because my husband wasn't seminary and because I was actively grieving and working through postpartum depression, I our, we were we were on a tight budget and I was receiving WIC vouchers, which is government, uh, like, governmentally issued vouchers to help you buy milk and egg and cheese and things that you, you would need uh, to stay healthy. So I had these WIC vouchers, and, um, and so I, I go to the checkout, and it's a teenage white girl, and she checks me out, and everything clears with the voucher. And I buy some other groceries along with the WIC voucher, and I'm walking out. And as I'm walking out, I don't even get to the sensors, I'm walking past this white security guard, and he stops me and says, I need to check your bags, I need to check your cart. And he begins to search everything, even my kids' bags. And he says, you know, we could just never be too safe. Or like the older white woman, who uh, recognized that my kids were melting down at the museum. And she turns to me and she says, maybe it's time that you call their mother. See, this woman assumed that I was their nanny. And when I told her that, no, they're mine, she said, well, then you should get them home. They're obviously overtired. See, if I hadn't done my work of knowing that I am loved by God and that God didn't make a mistake in making me a black person... I would have taken those racial incidences and hated those people. But I look back at those and I recognize that security guard probably had a boss and he probably had a bias and he probably just wanted to check and make sure everything was okay. He'd never see me in that store. Or that older woman was probably really annoyed because my kids were really annoying. And she probably looked at me, a young black mother, and thought, she's incapable. She can't handle it. Let me offer my advice. So I have been wounded, and I do have stories of racism. But I'm choosing to not let my anger lead my response. I am choosing to love. And I can only do this because I know who has called me to be a peacemaker. I know who made me black, and I know to whom I belong. The next thing that we see in Jesus' response is that Jesus responded with humility. In the same way... um, that this, was, this act, this act of getting down and washing the disciples' feet was a deeply humbling act. And it, was resist, and it was Jesus' way of resisting being glorified and praised for his work, but saying, I am your teacher. I'm here to show you a different way. I will go first. Right after George Floyd's murder, my husband and I, as clergy in this city, were invited to so many different rallies and protests and conversations. And one of the ones that stood out to me the most, the one that I feel like was the best picture of a modern day foot washing, was this black clergy led walk, silent walk, and then protest, um, or rally rather. And what I loved about it was I came to this space And I looked around at all of these white leaders in this city who said, I've come to the space to learn from black leaders about what is going on in our city, in our country around race. And the way that the, the walk was set up was the, the black clergy would, would get out in front, and then the white clergy would get behind, and then their congregations and their community would, would pull up their rear. And, it, and they encouraged us to stay silent and, and take whatever posture of prayer we wanted as we were walking. And the whole time as I was walking, I kept praying for those white pastors behind me who in their own way were washing our feet or saying you guys are tired you're tired of not being listened to you're tired of seeing people that look like you suffer and die and we are going to be a part of ending it we are behind you we've got you so jesus responds with humility and this humility is incredibly important because it brings with us a sense that we don't have it all together, that we need each other, and ultimately we need to to kneel with cupped hands to the Spirit to show us what to do next. The next response from Jesus was that he responded in truth. Y'all, there can be no reconciliation without truth. So I'm skeptical of any racial justice teaching that doesn't tell the whole story of chattel slavery and its implications on black people. I'm skeptical of any teaching in the church about racism that doesn't talk about how the church has been a part of sustaining white supremacy and racist systems and ideologies. If we're not willing to be washed away of that stain in our country, then everything else is just a shiny veneer. It's cute conversations over muffins and coffee. It's self-aggrandizing because now we're quote unquote, doing the work by learning and having these very safe conversations. But we no longer have time, church, to be cute. And we don't have time to have easy, fun conversations. We've got to get into the dirty hard work of remaking the world. We need to get into the hard work of rebuilding relationships with each other and building trust. And trust comes when we tell the truth. You see, Peter didn't want his feet washed. He said, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, here's the truth, Peter. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. Reconciliation comes with truth, and we respond with cupped hands, holding that truth. The cross was brutal, yet we look at it as Jesus' ultimate example of conquering over sin and death. So if we're going to be honest about conquering white supremacy, we really want to do this. Or we've got to look hard and long at slavery. This is why the justice journey that we did here at Woodland that I got to go with with Kevin Callahan was so important. Kevin is one of my favorite teachers about cruciform love of Jesus, about that sacrificial love of Jesus. And as we planned this trip, we knew that it was important for his predominantly white group of of students who have committed to nine months of discipleship of the kingdom way, that they go on a trip that asks them to look hard, look long, and examine the brokenness in our country because of slavery. We went to um, the Legacy Museum that Brian Stevenson um, built, and we stood underneath pillars, concrete pillars, with names of black men who were lynched. And we stood together and we looked at the dirt that was taken from the ground that held the blood of black bodies broken and beaten simply because they were black. And that group, that group had the most profound conversations the most beautiful response is, I sense the spirit knitting us together but changing our hearts. And then the last thing that we see in Jesus' response is the respond with an invitation. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We should recognize that we are invited with God into this Kairos moment, that we get to be the generation that's on the right side of history to say we stood up and we, we spoke for change and we brought love where there was hate. But we need to remember that the work of dismantling racism it's not just recognizing and repenting of and repairing the damage done over 400 years of oppression to black and brown people. We have to do all of that work, but we also have to know that this work is deeply interpersonal. And that is when we are invited to come to this conversation and to be able to, to take a moment and look at how we are feeling, what's going on within ourselves. We need to cultivate spaces where we can talk about all those emotions and and the prejudices that we bring and and know that those spaces are judgment-free. Know that those spaces are committed to your flourishing. We are invited to create a completely different culture, kingdom people, when we talk about race. This is the work of healing fractured relationships. It's the work of peacemaking through power under, not power over might. It's the work of learning to serve each other along the way because anti-racism peacemaking work requires us to be fully human so that we can hold on to each other's humanity, you white and me black. You who is constantly walking on eggshells because you're not used to thinking about the world in terms of systemic racism, and me who walks on similar eggshells because I'm never fully honest to be, never fully able to be honest about the pain caused by those systems. You who is angry about the labels put on you, and me who's angry about those labels too because so often when we start doing this work, we start talking about those labels instead of the actual work of, of rebuilding relationships with each other. We are both affected by racism. Our liberation is bound up with each other. We're affected by racism in two wildly different ways, and we have to be careful kingdom people because conflict awaits around every corner as we seek to understand what has gone wrong and make a better future for ourselves and our children. Friends, we're invited into this powerful, chain-breaking, humanity-restoring, self-giving kingdom way if we don't build our anti-racism work on the love of Jesus, we are missing something essential in this fight. That love will sustain us. That love will unite us. And that love will catch the attention of the world and say, that is different. That will last. So this is why when I teach anti-racism, I always start our time together with this kind of affirmation. I say peacemakers and I ask them to say it back to me. And I say, I love you. And then they say back to me, I love you, which always feels really good. And I say, I think you're smart. And they'll say, I think you're smart. And I say, I will believe the best about you. And they say back to me, I'll believe the best about you. And then we say, we can do this together. So as I close, I want to read one of the prayers that one of those white women wrote. This white prayer warrior has asked to remain anonymous. But this is our benediction as we go forward. And remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but that we protect each other in the trenches because the battle is is against the principalities and the goal is to keep building each other up while we destroy those oppressive systems that the principalities have constructed. We are anti-racist peacemakers who hold on to each other's humanity. So this is our invitation And this is our benediction to do the work. If you feel comfortable, will you extend your hands as if you're receiving a gift? And let me pray over you. Abba, on my face I come. I lay at your feet. My prayers offered and body rocking sobs. I lay broken by evil, broken by violence, broken by death broken by birthday candles that will never meet breaths, by graduation celebrations with empty chairs, by marriage vows never to be exchanged, by, gr- by grandchildren never to be celebrated, by parents who will die without their child at their side. I lay before you broken. Rising to my knees, I come. I come in kneeled repentance, hands clasped, eyes beginning to open. I see systems of oppression, systems that have benefited me, a white woman. I see mothers on the losing end of these systems who are mourning. I've never seen them quite so clearly. I've never heard their cry so loudly. I come in repentance. I come pleading comfort. I come pleading for every soul wounded by every trauma and every death. I come pleading for comfort. I come praying for perspective. Open my eyes wider, Abba. Open the eyes around me. Sear into our collective response, white, black, and brown, an awareness that beneath our differences run identical currents of love, playfulness, ache, trepidation, and hope. We come praying for perspective. Climbing to our feet, we come. We receive your outstretched hands, Abba, and rise to obey. We rise to use the voice you've given us. Though it quivers, we use it to speak your hope. We speak your supernatural peace over every aching soul. We speak freedom from every fear that permeates humanity. We speak your transforming love over hard hearts and closed minds. We speak the power of your restoration into racial divides. We speak light into darkness. We speak life over death. We rise, Abba, and we speak Jesus. Amen. So friends, I hope that you respond to this invitation. I am rooting for you. I love you. I will believe the best of you. We can do this together. I wanna encourage you to continue this conversation in several different places. Um, Join the gathering groups. They're a great space for you to process any of those emotions that I brought up (laughs) in this conversation with other people. Those are places that Pastor Shauna has worked really hard to keep judgment free and safe for you. I also wanna encourage you to join Pastor Shauna Shauna and um, Dan and myself on the MuseCast. We are gonna go deeper into this conversation. I'm very nervous to find out what we're gonna talk about, but it's gonna be good. So join us. Uh, and that might be a space where if you have questions, you can go ahead and email those in, and we will process some of those. And then the last thing I want to remind us is that, yes, this is a spiritual battle, and we know that the Spirit uh, desires to meet you in any of those emotions and those fears that you have, and if you want to process them um, with a prayer warrior, we have prayer rooms opened up for you. So please show up there and allow yourself to be equipped for this battle. All right, friends, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.